we don't know how to build a better world. And every time we've tried to go out to build a better world, we've usually built a worse world. We do know what's wrong. We can always identify cruelty. We can always see what's not working. So for me, liberalism is much more a remedial enterprise saying, this is unjust. That's horribly cruel. We can fix this. We can end the genocide in Rwanda without necessarily fixing, without pretending to fix human nature. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I'm Tina Brown, and you're listening to TBD. Among my favorite writers I inherited when I became editor of The New Yorker in 1992 is Adam Gopnik. He was the magazine's art critic when I arrived, but I had other plans for him. I asked him to move to France and become our Paris correspondent. There, in addition to his delightful dispatches about his family's Vion Rose, Gopnik continued to file piercing cultural criticism and exceptional reportage from Europe, all of which he recounted in his best-selling memoir, Paris to the Moon. Gopnik, who remains a staff writer for The New Yorker, has since returned to the United States. But to judge from his latest book, A Thousand Small Sanities, he's not so happy with the current state of our democracy. A social humanist in the tradition of Isaiah Berlin, Gopnik fears for a liberalism that remains under attack from the far right, but is also now being pummeled by the far left. As he sees it, truly progressive politics is not about radical revolution, but enlightened evolution. Whenever we look at how the big problems get solved, he writes in a passage that gives the book its title, it was rarely a big idea that solved them. It was the intercession of a thousand small sanities. The book is a passionate defense of 21st century liberalism, which is as cracked as the Liberty Bell itself. Adam Gopnik, welcome to TBD. It's wonderful to be back with you, Tina. Adam, this book was born the night of the 2016 election when you and your then 17-year-old daughter, Olivia, went for a shell-shocked walk together around the streets of New York. Tell me what you talked about that epic night, which clearly, you know, is, is the seeds of what you've written. So we were all gathered around the television, and like every other family, or so many other families, we proceeded from complacency to uh, worry to shock. And by one in the morning, it was plain that Donald Trump was going to be elected president, Olivia was physically shaking, trembling in front of me. She's a strong, able, super intelligent young woman, and she was shaken. And I could see that, and I said, babe, let's just go for a walk, and we'll, we'll just walk around the, the block. We ended up walking for two hours, and I tried, as we do in times like that, to give her some reassurance, to tell her no one bad person, no one bad moment could uh, upset the fundamental values that I hoped that I had taught her and that I believed were not only real but strong. I had zero success in persuading her of it at that moment because I was in a state of shock myself, and that wasn't the moment. And I noticed, you know, she looked at her 
uh, her cell phone, Tina, you know, was getting texts from her friends, and that was much more reassuring, that kind of firecracker explosion of OMFG. But I sort of made a contract with myself more than with her that night. I am going to try and write her a letter that explains to her why the values, which for lack of a, of a simpler name I would call liberal humanist values, are not just values that I believe in, but values that I believe are of enormous spiritual importance, values I want her to have. And this book was born that night. Why do you think that liberalism developed sort of such a soggy, sinking reputation in the last (laughs) decades? I mean, a lot of this book is about sort of defending liberalism because somehow people feel it needs defending. It does. Look, Tina, two things I think are true. One is liberalism as we understand it, meaning, uh, you know, constant movement since the 18th century for reason and reform. Uh, has always been under that kind of fire. It's never been a moment, at least not since 1848, when it seemed to be the the guiding flame of young people and so on. You you know you may remember at the height of the Cold War, what everyone said is, "Oh, liberalism is too weak to win against communism." In the 1930s, British intellectuals, particularly, took up sides either as communists or as fascist sympathizers because they said the liberal values of England are not strong enough to sustain uh, through uh, this period of extreme conflict. Uh, It was true after 9-11. No one wants to remember this right now. But if you you recall, everyone said, oh, there's nothing we can do against the ideological certainty and the moral fervor of the Islamicists. We're we're not strong enough to fight them. Even friends of mine like Chris Hitchens Mm -hmm. Uh, said things like that. At every moment, liberalism always seems rhetorically weak because liberalism has a rhetorically weak message. You know, I, in the course of this book, I offer my definition, my liberal sentence, and I made it the worst sentence I have ever written, <laughs> exactly as I wanted to capture all of the nuances and qualifications that have to go into what liberalism is. Right. And it's hardly a battle cry. Exactly. Marx says uh, workers must throw off their chains. The right-wing authoritarians say we'll make our nation great again. And the liberal says we will work as hard as we possibly can to be as nice to as many people as seems reasonable at the moment. It's hard to put it on a flag. It's hard to put it on a flag. And yet, and this is the whole point of the book, is that message, um, insipid though it may seem, is an incredibly powerful message. And if you think about it in historical terms, and if there's one thing I wish people would take away from this book, this is it. In historical terms, it's miraculous. There's no societies, no human societies on the record that we can point at and say, you know what their basic belief was? That we should try and be as fair as we can to as many people as we can and campaign as against as much cruelty as can be cured. That's, that's not part of the normal heritage well, of human you call, you, call, you do call liberalism a, a rhinoceros. Yes. Right, because it is actually much more tough and, and you it, know, it horny is. than It is. It's tough and ugly and sense, too. Well, horny in both senses. As you know, <laughs> I got that image kind of sprang out at me because I was um, writing about John Stuart Mill, the great mid-19th century British philosopher, and his great love, Harriet Taylor. And it's one of the great ungainly love stories of, of all time because she was married to someone else and they were courting clandestinely. So they would meet outside the rhino cage at the London Zoo because they figured nobody would be looking at them. Everyone would be looking at the rhino. And that's where they began these incredibly intense conversations that eventually crystallized into not one but two great books on liberty and uh, on the subjection of women, the first real testament of absolute women's equality. Uh, And it occurred to me when I was thinking about the two of them there, I could imagine them so clearly, right, kind of huddled up, talking to each other in that breathless way that lovers do while looking at the rhino, that the rhino was a perfect symbol for the liberalism that they represented. You know, a unicorn was born in the world because people would see rhinos and travelers. They didn't want to report on the ugliness of the rhinos. They made up the unicorn. And unicorns are beautiful and shining and ideal. They're the very type of the utopian 
imagination. Rhinoceroses are ugly, ungainly. They have one horn. They live in the mud, but they're formidable animals. For me, all the utopian strains of uh, politics are unicorns. Liberalism is a rhino. Mm -hmm. Well, we do seem to be in an escalating constitutional crisis at the moment in which the White House is rejecting congressional oversight and ignoring subpoenas, and Congress looks weaker every day. What is this moment that you see in terms of liberalism's position? I think we're in a state of absolute crisis. And as you know, Tina, I have been saying that now for three years. I'm rarely prescient, um, but I said when Trump first appeared, I said, this is a fundamental danger to liberal democracy. This isn't just some oafish clown from celebrity TV. Uh, And I think it gets worse every day. I think liberalism is under uh, assault. Liberal democracy is under assault in a way it has not been in my lifetime, certainly. Um, I think that the question that then returns is what what we do, right? And I think you can see honorable people like Nancy Pelosi, for instance. Now, you know, Nancy Pelosi shouldn't be a heroine. She's a heroine of mine because you see every day she's struggling to figure out what is the thing to do that will preserve our values and fight our fight. But you know, they don't feel like rhinoceroses to me. I mean, they don't it, feel formidable as rhinoceroses. No, they don't. Well, they're they, cumulatively. They, they, yeah, I hope so, but they don't seem to be. I, I, there is something scary about the fact that they seem weak. Yeah, it's. A, I wouldn't deny that. I, it worries me. Worries me very much. There's a failure of leadership. We'll see what happens in the in the next round. But I I share your fear. I have. You know, this book is meant to be optimistic about human values, but it's pessimistic about the national emergency. I don't want to give any kind of fatuous reassurance because I don't feel it. You know, progressive always look always look to the future, while the other side always seem to be want to go back to the way things were, the good old days. Um, is forward always better? I mean, we're living in a very very turbulent moment when people are afraid of the forward motion of liberal uh, change. I think there's a distinction to be made, and I hope it's not too fine an academic distinction, Tina, between liberalism and utopian progressivism. It's true there's a vein of liberal thought that always looks forward, but the vein of liberal thought that I'm trying to advocate for in this book is one that, that begins with the realization, look, we're all failable. Anything we're going to do is going to be effed up one way or another. It's just the nature of human situation. We don't know how to build a better world. And every time we've tried to go out to build a better world, we've usually built a worse world. The Marxist utopia is the best or worst example of that. We do know what's wrong. We can always identify cruelty. We can always see what's not working. So for me, liberalism is much more a remedial enterprise saying, this is unjust. That's horribly cruel. We can fix this. We can end the genocide in Rwanda without necessarily fixing, without pretending to fix human nature. And so I think that in that sense, um, liberalism should be a remedial enterprise in that way and should be able to speak to people who are frightened of the future and say simple, practical, immediate things. You don't have to worry about going bankrupt because dad gets a heart attack. That's the liberal project. And it works. It it tends to pacify the worst kinds of social agitation. Do you think that culture might be a better agent for reform than politics? I mean, you know, we keep hearing again and again that Will and Grace did more to promote the acceptance of gay people and eventually gay marriage than any amount of political activity or demonstrations. Oh, absolutely, Tina. It's one of the themes of this book, that for the most part, and this is part of the moral adventure of liberalism, exactly, is that um, most of the time the great and radical changes that are made are made on the ground. They're made by communities of people and only afterwards are ratified by legislatures and judges. Gay marriage is the perfect example of that. You know, Olivia and I were watching, uh, because she's a politics junkie, I'm glad to say, the Kennedy-Nixon debates from 1960 on, on YouTube. And 
we were both saying, you know, fascinating debates. You could not imagine those guys being asked, what do you think about marriage for homosexuals? It's just inconceivable. Inconceivable that anyone would ask that question. And now all but the most extreme fundamentalists have to say, well, I'm in favor of it, but that's about the worst you can hear. And that started with people who were unrealistic, talking about gay marriage. My friend Andrew Sullivan was one of those people. And when he did, everyone said, well, that's a kind of quixotic venture. Right up till 2008, Barack Obama said he wasn't quite ready for it. And then you have that beautiful moment of kind of uh, natural validation. Everyone says, oh, yeah, why not? Why should not gay people have the right to marry? And I think that that's the way real change happens. So, yes, absolutely. Cultural change is the secret to the liberal vision. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Do you feel, I mean, I feel as a British person that America is a place that loves punishment. And we see that in the extremes of our criminal justice system here and how hard it has been proving to to reform it. And then there's the unforgiving nature now of social media with reputations crashing and people kicked to the curb. How do you read this dark trait, you know, in contemporary life? It's so strange, isn't it? America is in love with the idea of punishment. You know, we... The worst overt symptom of it is mass incarceration, which I have written about now for 10 years. But you're absolutely right. It comes through on the left as well. The urge to cancel people. Can you imagine? A more canceled obscene... is a good word. It's like yes. you are canceled. canceled. Can you imagine a more obscene, totalitarian verb than to cancel a human being? Yeah. Not to punish a human being, chide, correct a yeah. human being. But you are cancel... expunged. Yes, you are expunged. And that's a left. Uh, that's a liberal uh, notion. Where that comes from, I... I think it's relatively um, recent. I think it comes in part, Tina, and I've not thought this through as thoroughly perhaps as I should. I think it comes in part from the from the genuine fact that so many of our interchanges are relatively anonymized, if I can use that word, by the media. So we're not conscious of the actual effect of it. If I can take an example that will be unpopular but is dear to my heart, there's no question, and we all say the Me Too movement was a terrific thing and it equalized the workplace and and stipulate that and no one will argue with it. But the real suffering of men who, in many cases, unfairly, 
were not merely uh, chided, corrected, um, removed from from a particular job, but obliterated from the social universe. That's something that we can be indifferent to because we don't have to live it close up. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, look, we are far too vindictive as a society. The question for incarceration should never be simply, oh, what do we do about all the innocent people in prison? It's what do we do about the guilty people in prison? Do we want to keep even guilty people in prison for 40 or 50 years? Those are harder questions. One thing that the right wing will say about liberalism is that, you know, people want order. They want order very much. And given how much disruption there is now from both globalism and digital innovation, it almost feels like a particularly bad moment to be talking about liberalism because I think more people just want peace of mind, order and routine than they do want the idea that they're going to be in this constant flux of, of remediation. T- totally. And I, I, one of the things I tried to do in this book, Tina, I don't know how successfully, but I certainly tried to do it passionately, was to give as, as good and as sympathetic account of the arguments against liberalism as the arguments for it. And there's no question the root argument for conservatism is our need for order. And we've all been largely blessed to grow up in largely ordered places. But boy, do you understand when there are moments of great change why people cling to order. What I'd say about it as a liberal and thinking liberally about it is that there's no reason why liberalism shouldn't be a friend to order. Liberalism certainly should be a friend to continuity. Liberalism doesn't have to embrace uh, the free market with quite the uh, blind uh, rapture that it did uh, in the period right after the, the Cold War. The free market is the thing, paradoxically, that causes the worst kinds of ruptures of that kind. You know, Do you I think spent... the liberals are just not understanding enough, though, about the desire for order, that it's yes. kind of they patronize people who want, want order. To, yes, I do think liberals have a difficult time with that. Liberals have a difficult time with patriotism, for instance, yeah. which is a, the symbolic form that order takes. Um, you know, my my son uh, quit everything else he was doing to go work on a congressional campaign in Staten Island. And the thing he had to learn to do was to talk patriotic progressivism with um, blue-collar people who had two American flags out on their porch. That's a kind of talking, kind of rhetoric that we have to learn to master again. It's a very important part of it. Well, mastering it is one thing, but sort of feeling it is another. I, I sort of feel one of the most exasperating things to liberals is why people with very little means, you know, root for leaders who they consider are going to make their situation a lot worse. And, I mean, you do talk about, which I do find interesting, this whole question of, sort of aggressive national pride and what you call national grandeur. That is actually such a unifying force to the working classes. Like, what? Why would that patriotic fervor be more important than, in a way, self-interest? Yeah, well, this is the great progressive delusion of the last two centuries, that working-class people ought to vote with um, leftists because that's where their interests lie. Instead, they vote with Donald Trump or Benjamin Disraeli or whomever it might be. Uh, and because that's their, it's an expression of their identity. If there's one theme in this book, it's that identity is much more important to people than utility. And a liberalism that doesn't make enough of identity in that broad sense will lose. No, I think it's one of the great uh, lessons for liberals, as you can learn from people as varied as Benjamin Disraeli and Charles de Gaulle, is it's a way of talking about national grandeur and national unity that isn't fascistic. When do you think liberals decided or allowed Uh, conservatives to own love of country? I think it's a complicated thing, but I think it has to do, you know, one of the biggest differences between liberals and what I call constitutional conservatives, not authoritarian right-wingers like Trump, is that um, conservatives have enormous reverence for religion and for the military. And that was something, particularly in America in the time of Vietnam, I think, that got 
lost. Um, and I think it's a very hard thing to re to remake. You know, one of the most moving episodes of my life, Tina, I don't think we ever discussed it, is I spent a lot of time in West Point in the years after uh, uh, the Iraqi war began. I was working on a piece that I never, for complicated reasons, never finished. But it was astonishing to be reminded of the extraordinary ethic of service and education that was present at that place and to realize that it was outside of our run of pubs, so to speak. It was not on our crawl. But enormously moving and impressive. And hugely so. And there was no reason on earth why that historically should be alien to the liberal temperament. And that's certainly part of the the work that needs to be done. I felt exactly the same thing when I went to West Point, actually. It was just what an incredible world it was and how deep it was deeply moving to see it. And I felt... Uh, embarrassed with myself, and probably you did too, that I had never really contemplated it like that before. Well, you know, there's something to be said, and I say this with hesitation because I'm old enough I won't have to live through it for national service. You know, there there was certainly something profoundly democratizing uh, in Britain and in uh, America both about the idea that Ivy League boys like Jack Kennedy served on a PT boat with working-class Boston boys. It was humanizing in both directions. Those are the kinds of blending experiences that we don't have enough of. And as I say, uh, I know that it can become nothing but a boondoggle, but I think the case for national service for just those reasons is a very profound For the the social blending. Um, We know why the right now hate liberals, but why do you think liberalism draws so much scorn from the left? I mean, you also talk about that in the book. Even more Even more. more I mean, it's so scornful. uh, Look, from the beginning, not to answer in too professorial a way, but it's important to remember, from the middle of the 19th century, you had two kind of progressive strains. One that comes out of John Stuart Mill that we properly call liberalism, that is devoted to the possibility of reform, and the one that comes out of Karl Marx that we call Marxism or, or radical socialism that's devoted to the necessity of revolution. So to the revolutionaries, the reformists always look like traitors. They always look like cowards. We despise a coward even more than we despise a traitor. And as a consequence, radical leftists have always respected radical rightists more than they can respect them, what they perceive as a muddled middle. And that proceeds to this day. You know, it's on questions, for instance, like uh, the Green New Deal or global warming. I've heard already from people saying, well, that's all fine and good in the past, but we've got to save the planet, so we're going to have to do it. The problem with that then and now is, fine, great, how are you going to save the planet? The yeah, only, the absence of process. In the absence of any kind of actual political plan. The only way it's going to happen is if you build a coalition. That's what democratic politics are about. That's what liberalism believes in possibility of coalition. The alternative to building a coalition is to suppress the people who don't agree with you. That's the only other way to do it. And we have seen all too clearly what happens when you engage in those acts of suppression. So the left will always be wildly impatient with liberals, and liberals will always say, we need a plan. What is the left's best argument, do you think, against liberalism? I think the left's best argument against liberalism is that liberalism can proceed from a kind of complacency that allows a great deal of cruelty and injustice to go on out of sight. You know, the best left-wing argument, I make it in detail in the book, 
is about colonialism, historically, mm. right? That liberalism lived very happily with imperialism when you were exporting out your atrocities to what yeah. we now call the third world. That's a, that's a totally reasonable thing. What I say in response, Tina, and I think it's the vital response, is liberalism tries to implant what I call a corrective conscience in all of its institutions. It's why we have a free press. It's why we have free universities. And the case against imperialist atrocities was made not outside the liberal world, but from within it. It was and goes on uh, to this day. That's where the anti-Vietnam movement began. But how should liberalism now then reform itself? You write that it needs to become more passionate, planetary, and private. Yes, I, I, and I like public. That. Yeah, and pu- so all the those three P's, things. That's yes, pretty those, resonant. Yes. So aside from it being a, a nice sentence, give me the the real. Well, you know how it is, it. Tina. With me, you've worked with me long enough to know I don't <laughs> give a damn about anything except ni- a nice sentence. A nice <laughs> sentence for me is like a, a beautiful pregnant woman. I totally am slain by it. Um, I think liberalism has become too planetary, and just the way we were talking about before. I think we need to have a way of talking patriotism that's really persuasive. Some of that has to do with re-embracing the military, as we were saying before. Lots of ways in which to do it. This will sound like a bizarre uh, figure to bring in, but you know, Philip Roth, the great American novelist, spent the last five years of his life just thinking about this question, about renewed patriotism. And he thought about a patriotism of place. He thought about love of place. His case, bizarrely, a love of Newark, New Jersey. Well, this the... is somewhat what David Brooks has been writing a yes. lot about. I mean, he talks about the thick society and how we've become detached from our own rights and, and how a society, you know... Where that, that... I would strongly differ from David, though, on this, and it's, I think, a crucial difference, is that none of that is of any value unless it takes a governmental form. In other words, the notion that we can do without, we don't have to worry about politics because we'll get it right in the private s- sphere, that's, uh, that, won't, that is not going to happen. And I think that that's a delusion. But I do think that it's certainly true that we need a stronger sense of patriotism. We need a stronger sense of uh, public-mindedness. Uh, you know, my parents, like yours, I'm sure, uh, became people who were educated because of public schools. Liberalism, in a certain sense, is nothing more than public education at every level. You know, there's lots of um, uh, social science that shows that the single best way to reduce income inequality, by far, is to have pre-K education for all. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of things we need to think about. And uh, finally, we need to be passionate again. We have to not be apologetic. You know, I was a huge fan of Barack Obama, and I always will be. But there's a reasonable critique to be made of Obama to say that the technocratic turn of mind and the technocratic presence was inadequate. And it was the absence of authentic passion that allowed totally ersatz celebrity TV passion to blossom in the person. And because it's a messy business getting it done, and he didn't like the messy part. That's right. The, the press have given huge play to the far left candidates, uh, but you know Joe Biden is really streaking ahead. He's yes. now got a forty six percent lead in the polls. Do you think that hot lead will last? And is he the example really of the kind of liberalism you're talking about? You know who who is not far left like these other candidates, and and somehow stands for a more decent. Uh, well, I think there are outreach. a lot of them, Tina. You know, I mean, even the farthest left candidate in the Democratic Party is not terribly far left by global standards. I'm a huge fan of Kamala Harris, of Mayor Pete, who I got to hear speak and thought was extremely impressive. Naturally, I would have a weakness for a a good liberal who's read James Joyce. (laughs) Look, I think that um, I'd be perfectly content with Joe Biden. One of the lessons of liberalism is we're not trying to build a perfect world. We're trying to make a better world. And I certainly think that Joe Biden would be an incomparably better president than 
what we have now, and he would be good enough. He wouldn't be my first choice, but I think it's interesting that he's doing so well because I do think it's true that you get a very skewed idea of where the Democratic Party actually is by paying attention to Twitter progressives as opposed to actual voters. Remember, Democratic Party voters are older people for the most part. Right. And they're attractive. And not even on Twitter, is the truth. No, they're, they're, they're not yeah. even, they don't even know what it is. They don't, I, I have a dear friend, a man in his 80s. Someone said, oh, there was something on Twitter. He says, oh, I don't subscribe to that. I thought it was a magazine, like, the whole time. <laughs> I love that, actually. American canvases, though, become very, very dangerous places for any speakers. And I'm, I'm very concerned about that because when you talk about how, you know, the liberal reform came from inside academic institutions, I mean, American academic institutions now are so intolerant of dissent what is your feeling about what's happening on campuses? Well, you know, liberals always say we should grown-up people should be able to count to two. So it's I think it can be exaggerated or exploited in terms of how extreme it is. But there's no question it's a real thing. Olivia, right, who's the uh, person I'm addressing this book to, has actually moved sharply to the right in large part as a consequence of her encounters with the most fatuous kind of, um, for lack of a better word, political correctness on campus. I will say, frankly, that I thought, for instance, that Harvard's decision to remove the uh, dean of one of the houses, they call it a dean, he's really a housemaster in the old-fashioned sense, because he had agreed to be on Harvey Weinstein's defense team facing the charges of rape and so on here in New York. And Harvard said it created too uncomfortable. I don't know if that was their word, but that was the sense well, of the, it. Well, the students went. Students went. Were tremendously some, protested. Some of the students protested. And they capitulated. And they said, we'll remove this, we'll remove this couple, actually, uh, from it. And I think that was a terribly wrong decision. That was a disgraceful thing. I think it was. Not because, and we hardly need say, because Harvey Weinstein no. is an admirable person. We both know better. But because, imagine at the height of the McCarthy period, right, if someone had said, oh, he's defending the Rosenbergs, therefore we're going to have to remove him. That would define what the worst of McCarthy. And it's also the idea that, that, that young people have to be sort of coddled from, oh, from yes. dissent that, or from someone who's got a point of view that penetrates their sort of received is, wisdom. Is, is different from their own. Look, a lot, we both know that a lot of um, alt-right people try to exploit that weakness in order to uh, make it seem as though they have a right to spew their own particular kind of venom elsewhere. But there's no question. I thought that the statement of the uh, president of the University of Chicago, don't know if you saw it, was exactly right. The university is a place where we come to argue about ideas. It's a place where we never want violence about ideas, but arguing about ideas is the lifeblood of a democracy. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Where did you stand on the decision to disinvite Steve Bannon from the New Yorker Festival? Well, because... I, get, I, don't get, I don't get consulted anymore on, on New Yorker <laughs> but, you decisions. Know, that, that surprised me in a way. If I can, and I don't say this to, to defend uh, my my dear friend David Remnick, but because I think it's true. I think the key problem there was festival. There's no question that 
fierce exchanges of uh, differing views are, is a vital notion. The festival has, throughout its history, been a place where you come together with like-minded people to, to share. So putting it in that context, I think, might have been uh, the, the problem, the deeper problem. I will say, Tina, and I wrote about this. I don't want to be hypocritical about it, not about that case. I wrote about Sarah Sanders, remember, when they refused to serve her at the mm-hmm. restaurant in Virginia. I think there is a case to be made, right? When somebody like Sarah Sanders spends their whole life telling lies, a spitting on the plates of civility, that they are not necessarily own civility in return. You could make a case. I'm, I am proposing this more hypothetically than polemically. But you could make a case that Steve Bannon is not someone who deserves a place at the table, that what he's done to poison democratic discourse is so toxic that treating him as though what he's saying is reasonable is wrong. In the 1930s, I would have been sympathetic to someone who said, I'll hear from labor and I'll hear from conservatives, but I don't want to hear from Oswald Mosley because what he stands for is to be an enemy of all the values that the rest of us share. That's a case that I don't think you can overlook completely. But it's a case that only is relevant if you're genuinely talking about true enemies of democratic values. What were your own parents' politics, Adam, and how old were you when you first started forming your own views? I mean, you are one of the most opinionated people I've ever met, and I get a sense that the entire family is that way. I have oh, no I, idea what Thanksgiving dinner is like I in the Cockney I have six house. brothers and sisters. We were all, you know, born talking and arguing. Uh, my father is, uh, you know, came from, both my parents came from very poor um, immigrant backgrounds, and they both went on to get their PhDs. Um, and uh, my dad's an English professor. My mom, very well-known uh, linguist. And they brought us up arguing and talking and reading books and, you know, who's got the floor? And believing two things, which I hope are reflected in this book. First, that all that matters is the quality of your arguments, not the nature of your authority. You know, nobody at the table could squelch anybody. Well, I guess the older kids probably did. But my father never um, tried to overrule anybody. He wanted to listen. And he always said to us again and again, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is what your argument is. That was a vital lesson for me. And uh, uh, from my mother, I also think, and I hope this is reflected in the tone of the book, um, learned that there were no uh, lines between the kind of work you did with your mind, the kind of work you did in the kitchen, that uh, life is a totality. And she was both a great, remarkable scientist and a great cook. And she taught me to value both those things together. What kind of a parent have you been, Adam? Because, you know, some of your most delightful writing has been about you know, raising your kids. And when you went to Paris as a young father, I mean, are you a very extremely sort of vigilant, engaged father? What do you feel about the whole concept of the helicopter parent? Have you been a helicopter parent? What's your view of yourself as a parent? I, I hope I haven't been a hel- I don't like helicopter parents and I don't approve of them. I had a reputation for being a much firmer disciplinarian than than most others. I've always thought the key with kids is you cannot shape a child. Kids are going to be who they are from the moment they're born. And you can love them and watch them grow. But you can't teach them courtesy. I really do believe that. I believe that uh, teaching manners is a big part of the job of being a parent. So I was a bit of an outlier, I think, in my generation, because I made a huge fuss about manners about hellos and goodbyes and you look somebody in the eye when they come into the room and you don't mumble when uh, when someone speaks to you and those kinds of things i know they seem like mr turvy drop in bleak house <laughs> department but i really do i really do believe in it how good a parent i was i don't know i know that um I'm still talking to the kids every day, which is about as much as you can hope for at our age, I think. That spell in France must have been very much of a shaping experience for you. Um, Did it have that kind of impact on you? Well, those were 
truly shaping years for me. And I thank you, Tina, for supporting me through all those years very profoundly. It's where I found my voice as a writer. Yeah. And I am, in the first instance, a writer. I write about politics. I write about many things. But I care mostly about writing. That's where I found my voice. I became mm-hmm. myself as a writer in those years. And I always say to uh, to Martha, my wife, when I'm you know suffering from dementia and you know how, how people who suffer from dementia remember something from their past and relive it, I'll be back by the window in Paris watching Luke and Martha come back from the Luxembourg Gardens. It was that kind of central experience. You know, it was also, in many respects, a sobering experience of seeing a certain kind of tragedy, a certain kind of historical tragedy. France and Paris, with all of their enormous uh, reservoir of uh, civilization, were stumbling, uh, couldn't cope with the coming of post-modernity in any way. And watching that struggle, which was gallant in many ways, but a losing struggle, was disturbing. It goes on to this day, you know, the, I wrote for you, Tina, again and again, the same piece on different guises. It said, modernity came knocking on the door this morning and Paris said no. And that was uh, at a moment when London was saying yes, which gave an extra yeah, spice but, you know, to that. If I was period. editing now, I would want you to have been talking to us about Brexit because I would want your kind of mind unraveling that for us and explaining that for us. What are your views about Brexit and how it happened in the UK? Well, you know, I'm, I hate to be an expert who's someone who has strong views about something he hasn't seen. But I do think that it's it obviously is a, lots of similarities with the rise of Trump in, in America. It's an old people's movement. It's a xenophobic movement, largely, as in, in America's in Britain, an anti-immigrant movement by people who haven't actually experienced much immigration. You know, it's not coming out of London where... Uh, the overwhelming majority of people you'll see on the tube come from elsewhere. It's coming from up north. It's coming from uh, from those places. I think it is a, if I almost think it's a worse tragedy in Britain than here, because I genuinely believe, knock wood and who knows, that we have the resources to recover. I thought that Britain had been so moved forward by its experiences in the last 25 years, unlike France, for instance. I don't know if you remember the uh, the Olympic uh, closing ceremonies in 2012. Yes. And I thought, wow, that's a country that's been well analyzed, right? Yeah. It's looked at itself. It's given up its imperial role and says, we're still the country of Harry Potter, James Bond, the Beatles, a million good things. And we are proud of our role as being a, a reservoir of imagination for the rest of the West. So that's a healthy country. Well, except that what was missing was national grandeur from that. Yes, I, I mean, it was, it was about quirky true. cultural successes. It wasn't about... Patriotism was kind of not involved in that. That's a very story. good point, Tina, and I, yeah. I, I I hear that, and I think, and I I wonder if, in fact, historians a hundred years from now won't look back and say just the way they say about you know the Queen's Diamond Jubilee right. that it was incredible display of that kind of national grandeur, but blind to the fragility right. on which it stood. Who do you most admire yourself today as a liberal hero? I mean, who do you think, looking around the landscape, any country, any place? I mean, who are your liberal heroes? Um, I this will be a, a question that will get me nothing, uh, bring me nothing but remorse elsewhere. But I do think Tony Blair is a fascinating and admirable guy. Clearly made a historic mistake in the time of the Iraqi War, but I think that his larger project to try and bring together uh, democratic socialism with uh, a broader renewed liberalism, I still think that was an admirable project. And Blair and Brown, I think, will look good in the eyes of history. Um, I admire a lot of. Um, uh, you know, people who are thinking and working, for instance, I've been spending a lot of time at something called the Fortune Society lately. It's a society that's just devoted to helping men and women. Yeah, incarceration. Incarceration, yeah. just out of incarceration. Uh, that's exactly what I mean by a thousand small sanities. Uh, every Thursday night, it's been a hugely moving part of my life recently, 
you go up there and you see these remarkable men, most of them ex-cons in the old-fashioned sense themselves, trying to get people started on better lives. That's the lifeblood of liberalism. And as this book says, it's a thousand small sanities. It doesn't come from one radiant sun. It comes from those lights. So the bottom line is, can liberalism be saved? I'm not a prophet, and I'm probably the least prescient person I've ever known. I used to write pieces for you about how uh, Dominique Villepin was going to be elected president of France <laughs> and so on. So I have no make no claim to that. I think that, and this is the moral I want to come away from the book, you know, liberalism is no more than the practice of coexistence turned into a principle of pluralism. We're all good, for the most part, surprisingly good at coexisting with each other. You know, there are rarely fights on the subway, as a matter of fact. I know that sounds obvious, but it's profound in a way. We are good at coexisting with each other, different kinds of people living side by side, trading. But that always breaks down historically. People's, then a massacre happens. Uh, and I think that in that sense, the core values of liberalism, social sympathy, will always survive because they're essential. Whether the particular instantiation of them that we've been blessed to live through in liberal democracies, whether that survives, is a fight. It's a fight. Well, because that, also, you know, we haven't had digital disruption before. We haven't had the isolation of the internet. You know, I'm more skeptical of that than many people, Tina. And again, I could be wrong about this. But one of the things that strikes me when it comes to technology is that any one moment people point to the dominant technology and find it at fault. You know, in the 1930s, brilliant people, W.H. Auden and elsewhere said, uh, Hitler cannot rule except with the newsreel, right, with movies, that because they speak to us at such an emotional level that we can't resist them. Now, we watch those things now, right, and they seem to us creaky and antiquated, and we say, you know, that was able to stir tens of millions of people. So the problem was Hitler, not Lenny Riefenstahl, not the movies that got made. I'm inclined to think that the Internet is just as capable of making... uh, plausible communities. You know, look at the way it springs together after something like Parkland, right? Right. All of those things. So I'm a technological neutralist. I think the technology tends to have a more neutral effect on our passions, that that the real problem is uh, finding ways in all the the ways we've talked about of uh, calming fears without placating nostalgia. And that's a big task. That's a very hard task. That's what a good politician does and and ought to be able to do. And the other thing I'd say is is that politics proceeds in big cycles. You know, we tend to not to want to see that. We think, oh my God, uh, Trump replaced Obama. That means Obama was a failure. Mm -hmm. I don't think it works quite that way. It was the author Schlesinger's circles. Yes, exactly. You know, that... uh, what that means is is that Trump and Obama are part of one big cycle where you had enormous social change, which you and I were too obtuse to understand was being perceived because we perceived Obama as uh, as a very mild, tepid um, uh, phenomenon. It wasn't perceived that way at all by a lot of people. It was perceived as fundamental and frightening. Uh, and so we've had this reaction, which let us always remember, I know uh, people dismiss it when you say it, but it can't be said too often, was not some huge upswing of overwhelming sentiment. It was a narrow election in which millions more people voted for the liberal than voted for the nationalist. So I, in that narrow sense, I'm, I'm epistemologically optimistic, but I'm practically, you know, everybody, I say it in the book somewhere, um, the tr- our true philosophy is the philosophy of our insomnia. What do we wake up at 3 a.m. worrying about? We wake up worrying about our kids and their future, and we wake. I wake up worrying about the survival of liberal civilization. And, and I money. Cannot, 
<laughs> you wake up worrying about money, too. And money. Well, that goes without saying. But the two things go together, right? They do. Money for our kids. Well, our kids have a life as good as our own, right? Um, however they choose to define it. Well, they have opportunities as good. All that stuff goes together, and that's the philosophy of my insomnia. I always do love hearing about your ideas. You have the most fertile mind of anyone I know. And uh, this new book is very, very stimulating. Well, I'm delighted to hear it, Tina. Thank you, Adam. You've been listening to TBD with me, Tina Brown, brought to you by Wondery. You can subscribe to TBD on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep up with us however you listen to podcasts. And please don't keep TBD all to yourself. Tweet about it, Instagram it, or, you know, try having an actual conversation with a real person. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's a great way to spread the word. Want to get more engaged with the energy around women's empowerment? Sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter of Women in the World for all the stories that you need to know coming to you from global women on the front edge of change. That's womenintheworld.com. TBD is produced by Tina Brown, Kathleen Russo, Julie Subrin, Karen Compton, Justine Giannino, and Michael Solomon. Original theme music is composed by Forrest Gray. Come back next time for more smart people on TBD. TBD.